This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast, the podcast where we study books and read books and encourage you to do the same, mostly in the Austrian and libertarian traditions, but also sometimes going a little farther afield than that. And last year, after we sort of slogged our way through both Mises' Human Action and Murray Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State, I sort of pledged that in the ensuing year, now 2021, we would uh, spend some time with some of Rothbard's shorter books. And to that end, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we took some time with uh, uh, Anatomy of the State, which was a fascinating little short read. And also just last week with What Has Government Done to Our Money, which is really his seminal book for lay readers on the history and nature and uh, depredations of money. So those were fun shows. And we're continuing this week with another Rothbard book. This one's a little more political. It's called The Betrayal of the American right. Now, this book, which was mostly written by Murray in the early 1970s, is really, uh, I think, represents probably better than any other book. My own personal political traditions, it's, it's a book about the old right and its betrayal. And what we mean by the old right is something very American and actually very modern, a 20th century phenomenon. The old right's an American tradition uh, from the 1930s, where it finds its origins and it, you know, it's based on uh, opposition to the New Deal, but also questioning the wisdom of World War I and uh, what was to come, obviously, in the conflagration of World War II. And it's also an indictment of the conservative movement that arose around and surrounding, let's say, National Review in the 1950s. So it's a really fascinating mix of both uh, history and, uh, uh, you know, Rothbardian critique and, and ideology. Uh, so what's fascinating to me about this book is that e even though Rothbard, of course, died in the early 1990s, and even though this book only goes up really until uh, just before the, uh, you know, the 60s and 70s, before the Cold War ended, there have been betrayals since then in my lifetime uh, of the American right. In other words, I was a teen and then a college student during the so-called Reagan revolution, which turned out to be nothing more than hot air, which put a libertarian rhetorical veneer on just another big government phony. As a matter of fact, federal debt tripled during the eight years Reagan was in office. And what we got out of it was a media acting like the government had been shrunk and then uh, according ills to that shrinkage, which of course wasn't true. And then if you fast forward to really 12 years of Bushism uh, interrupted by Clinton, but, uh, you know, George W. Bush, who was nobody's idea of an intellectual, who's basically the Fredo of the Bush family, uh, comes along and quietly becomes a transformative president, engineering the next great leap forward. So the supposed compassionate conservatism of the Bush family turns into anything but. And George W. Bush not only gives us uh, two awful, terrible wars of convenience and choice in Iraq and Afghanistan, wars which we're still engaged in and still suffering from and still paying for and still having young people killed over. But he also gives us, for example, the Medicare Part D prescription drug program, which was basically designed as a sop for seniors to help them beat John Kerry in 2004. And that program is more costly than the underlying Medicare program itself. In other words, free drugs cost more than free doctor visits, it turns out. 
He also gave us the Department, Department of Homeland Security, the first agency in more than a decade. The TSA comes out of that. And he gives us the No Child Left Behind Act, which is perhaps, depending on how you want to view things, uh, the greatest leap forward in federalization of education in this country's history. So his Medicare Part D drug benefit was a much bigger deal than Obamacare, in effect, maybe not rhetorically, but in effect. And so we have in my own lifetime, in a period after the focus of this book, The Betrayal of the American Right, two further betrayals of conservatives. So it, it's, it's really interesting to read this book, given that. And it's also always fun just to see how prescient Murray Rothbard really was and continues to be because we're still reading him and we're still finding stuff he wrote long after he passed away. So to help me with this book, I decided to get two of the most thoroughgoing Rothbardians I know. One is Professor Patrick Newman. Many of you know him both as a college professor in Florida, but also uh, a fellow here at the Mises Institute who has resurrected a lot of Murray Rothbard's uh, unfinished work when he died. And the other is our own assistant editor, Tho Bishop, who uh, writes quite a bit on politics and the populist Rothbardian right. So with that lengthy introduction, Tho and Patrick, I want to thank both of you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having us on. Glad to be here. This is an exciting book to talk about. It is. And Patrick, maybe you can start us off with there's a it's a little strange in that Murray wrote this in 71, mostly. He revised it a bit in 73, but it didn't appear via the Mises Institute's imprimatur until 1991. So can you just give us a little background on the book? So Rothbard wrote this in the, as you mentioned, in 1971. Uh, so he was kind of in the late 60s, early 70s. You got to sort of look at where he was in his career. He had finished Manikani State, he'd finished America's Great Depression. He had wrote the bulk of Conceived in Liberty. Uh, he'd become a professor. He'd become a professor at Brooklyn Polytech. Uh, he was working on this. He was working on various essays related to libertarianism, egalitarianism, as a result against uh, human nature, and other essays. That collection. Uh, he's working on for new liberty, etc. And uh, it's wanted to sort of go through. This is when he was sort of ending his relationship with the new left in the 1960s uh, when he tried to ally with them on the Vietnam War, but. By the early 70s, it looked like that relationship was not going to work. So he was asked basically by, uh, you know, one of the people behind this book was this man named Bob Kephart, uh, who was a, you know, affiliated with Rothbard, helped fund some of his stuff, uh, wanted him to write a book on the history of the conservative movement, particularly the old right, which, as you mentioned, which sort of grew out of the New Deal. Uh, it really, in many ways, the old right is extremely significant for actually keeping not only American libertarianism, but Austri also Austrian economics alive in America uh, with Mises and Hayek, uh, and really just kind of go through that, uh, because by that time, the right-wing establishment was, you can think of uh, Bellicose, they're you know, neoconservative, they wanted to go to war against the Soviet Union, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the big government kind of conservatism that uh, if you grew up in the early 2000s uh, or in the 80s, you know, a lot of people uh, knew. So Rothbard had wrote this book. There were publishing difficulties uh, that caused it that not to be published. And then uh, sort of, you know, winding up again in the in the early 90s. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Rothbard died before basically, I guess, the book could get published again. And then it later got uh, you know, Tom Woods wrote a great introduction 
uh, to the book in uh, when it was published in 2007. Well, it also appears when you read Tom Woods's introduction that Rothbard had written an additional chapter, which perhaps takes the the story up a little closer into the you know late seventies and even the nineteen eighties, the what we might call the end of the Cold War era. But this, but we don't seem to have it. So, is that your understanding? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I myself have have looked in the I've I have looked through the actual draft of the book, you know, and not in its its professional typeset, but when he was actually typing it up. Uh, I, at least looking through that, uh, have not been able to excavate uh, the, <laughs> the this, this missing chapter. I'm not sure how much of it, it was done, uh, whether or not he changed his mind on things, et cetera. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have that where Rothbard goes through the 70s and 80s, though I could probably give a pretty good explanation of what he would have spoken about during this time period. And it probably would have linked in much with the uh, the success and the failures of the early libertarian party and the libertarian movement in general in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. So, though, give me your sort of overarching thoughts on this book. What what does it mean today? What can we learn from it today with everything going on with sort of post-Trump Biden America? Well, it's such an interesting book because it is two parts, kind of one, a, a political autobiography, and then the other one, just a fascinating history of, of a political movement on the institutions and players involved. And I think about how many political theorists out there could ever write something like this, right? I mean, you know, names are, are named, right? His focus on the publications is so important because that has a lot to do with his frustration with the liberty movement. Kind of, you know, in the late '80s, is that you have, in spite of the fact that you have communism falling internationally, you have a collapse of a lot of the publications that had become such an important tool in getting ideas out there, and so, so that's something that you see throughout Rothbard's work is his his uh, the what he stresses on the institutions necessary for promoting a political end, and and I think the timing of this book is interesting because the what what uh, uh, strategically both going into that libertarian period and also the 90s era, you know, Pat Buchanan, paleo strategy stuff. The main focus, and I think in both those sides, was the, the Buckleyite right, right? You know, they're trying to build a libertarian movement, being a lot more radical. This is what we saw a lot of the early, you know, the big focuses in the, in the libertarian period is the focus is on people not being radical enough. He's trying to, you know, portray this very bold, differing view on, on the status quo of American politics. And then in the 90s, in this post-Cold War era, um, you know, he's trying to identify, hey, look, I might be a you know, crazy libertarian, but here are our common you know, legacies to those that don't want to – they don't believe in this universalistic neocon worldview um, you know, that the national view would became really the fountainhead of, right? And, and so it's interesting now because you know, we're in you – know, while we still have troops over, you know, in the Middle East and, and in our foreign policy is still awful – Politically, we're, we're kind of in a post-war on terror world, right? And I think that's kind of uh, – Donald Trump's election I think was kind of the first you know, where, where you saw people were kind of moving on. They had different priorities than you know, responses to – the lingering responses to 9-11. And similarly, I think that you see that a lot of the political alliances that um, Rothbard uh, was reaching out to in his early 90s, there's a lot of things that rhyme now with the populist right – uh, and in a variety of different directions. And, and one of the things I like about this and so much of Rothbard's uh, kind of power elite economic analysis is uh, his focus on like Teddy Roosevelt, right? And, and that, that specific style of populism, 
because that's that's very popular now with within kind of the modern right and you see a lot of people oh we just need we need someone like teddy roosevelt to go in and bust up these big corporations with a big stick well you know that's interesting throughout so much of rothbard's political history is you know he recognizes you know kind of the, the jacksonian populism is one thing you're know, going directly after state privilege and and you know the the merits of that approach and contrasting that to this the progressive populist approach of roosevelt where you know these these you know these regulatory bodies and things that are nominally meant in the name of you know, attacking the big guy only serve larger financial in, uh, interests and, and and this comes up through this book about why, why big go, or your know, big business is not a faithful ally of the right no matter what you know he kind of takes a, a shot at uh, you know, Rand's line about the most prosecuted minorities big business a lot of that the regulatory side of the the Teddy Roosevelt approach helped you know, create a lot of the uh, the, the corporatist style uh, economy that we have here, and and so again, there, there's so much of the the things that he touches on, you know, in, in the old right, the, the 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 overlap it has with the appeals during the '90s. There's so much resonant now, um, and and I, I can that's something that I think that we have a huge opportunity reaching out to is is there's, there's a lot of shared intellectual legacy that we can make appeals to, and Rothbard does a great job of laying it all out. You know, Patrick, even though what we today call the old right coalesces, let's say, in the 1930s, it has its origins, obviously, in the progressive era of an earlier century. And you've uh, edited Rothbard on that very subject. How much does Rothbard's progressive era wisdom and knowledge and understanding inform this book, do you think? Oh, I think it uh, it informs it tremendously, particularly also almost in the sort of the flip side of the progressive era, which is the people fighting against the progressivists. So he has a couple allusions to some business interests that's, that uh, were against the uh, Spanish War. Uh, he talks about various laissez-faire interests, uh, Edward Atkinson, William Graham Sumner. Then he goes into a little bit about the Bourbon Democrats, the Cleveland Democrats, and he goes into the politicians that had fought the the war, uh, World War One, uh, and just sort of the general big business, big government alliance around this time period. So you've got uh, senators like William Borah, Republican from Idaho. Uh, I think the, his name was James Reed, who is a Democrat from Missouri, uh, and other people. And you started to see almost a, a, an odd alliance between, with libertarians and socialists. And then this goes into guys like uh, 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 Mencken and Albert J. Nock and uh, how they were criticizing the traditional big government establishment in the 1920s and so on. And this is it at his, his knowledge of the progressive era absolutely informs this because GCR, you can see him tying in. Uh, this is mentioned, I believe, by Garrett, Garrett, Garrett how the revolution wasn't actually the New Deal, so to speak. All these business interests kind of criticizing it. Well, a lot of their own policies that supported led to it. Uh, the corporatist movement to establish government-sponsored cartels, uh, which in large part began under Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, then you've had the, uh, like the, the War Industries Board and so on. So it's a tremendous, his knowledge of the progressive era really kind of leads into his whole narrative of this book. Yeah, I really love – there's an entire chapter basically devoted to Macon and Nock. And so people who are fans of either of those writers will enjoy it. And, you know, it's one thing, Patrick, to criticize the New Deal. There was plenty of babbitry 
uh, with which Ross Rothbard alludes to Babbitt being obviously the character in Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt, which is one of my favorite books. And I think Babbittry came back a little bit during the Trump era, uh, and I'm a little more sympathetic to Babbitt, just like Sinclair Lewis was, than maybe uh, his critics would be. But w- when it comes to Mencken and Knock, you know, it's it's actually a much tougher thing to criticize U.S. involvement in World War One during the interwar period. That takes a little bit different. Uh, tone in in your critique. Oh, absolutely. Uh, foreign policy criticisms, and this is a prominent uh, one of Rothbard's also his explanations for the Progressive Era. A large part of it did have an internationalist bent, where bankers in various interests they had supported wars abroad. You think of World War One, World War Two, uh, because there was uh, basically a shift away from protectionism to not really free trade, but the idea of subsidizing exports. Corporations have become very, uh, you could say, multinational or more export-minded by uh, World War One, and, and that's always been something that, and Rothbard talks about this throughout the book, that in traditional conservatism, uh, revisionism used to be a big thing, uh, but then there was a growing tension between, well, you shouldn't talk about uh, foreign policy, sort of cronyism, so to speak, or you know, criticizing foreign wars that's unpatriotic, or supporting the communists, or you're supporting the enemy, et cetera. And that really kind of forms the backbone for, you could say, the betrayal <laughs> of the American right. But big foreign policies is, is very important in this book. And it's very important for Rothbard's analysis of the progressive era and just in general. Yeah, what I found fascinating was actually at page 10. And of course, we'll link to a PDF of this book for those who want to read it online. Um, in, in discussing Mencken, uh, there's a literary critic named Samuel Putnam at the time who, who, as far as I can tell, comes up with the term Tory anarchist, describing Mencken's perspective. And I guess you could view that as sort of a, an admixture of uh, elitism and skepticism all bound up in one. And we've heard that term used a lot. There was actually a book written but under that title in the 2000s. And I know Daniel McCarthy, who's over at Modern Age, uh, uses that as his Twitter handle. I had him on the show a few weeks ago. But what, what do you think that means? What does Tory anarchist mean in this setting or context, Patrick? <laughs> well, one of the things about Mencken is, as you mentioned, he was sort of an elitist and you could say general sort of literary critic. So he was, it's funny reading even him and Knox, some of their analysis of, of uh, like Knox criticizing mass education. And so nowadays when we would talk criticizing mass education, oh, everyone's got to go to high school. Everyone's got to get a college degree. It's all dumbed down. <laughs> like you read some of their stuff and they're talking about it like a like hundred years ago, like, oh, education, it can't get any worse. And how we sort of look at that as like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could go back to that? You know, and they're they're already thinking like, man, couldn't it be great if we go back to before? So yeah, you do have sort of that uh, that conservative kind of, uh, you could say elitist, uh, the, 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 the masses are dumb. Uh, and this is somewhat of a shift, even though they, they still held on to the, the term uh, radical, uh, by this time, sort of liberalism or classical liberalism, uh, the general sort of uh, pro-capitalist bent of them was seen as somewhat uh, almost reactionary. They were fighting against the tide of progressivism, socialism, et cetera. So, yeah, basically the way you, you look at it, it's, it's sort of uh, elitist kind of skepticist 
you know, person in favor of individualism, uh, you know, free market, et cetera. That's what they're getting at. And that's sort of a, a running theme throughout, I would say, Mencken as well as Knock. Well, when you mentioned foreign policy as one of the underpinnings of the old right, there's a whole section in this book where Rothbard unapologetically uses the term isolationism, which I thought was refreshing because you know, we, we in the modern libertarian era have tried to repackage that as non-interventionism, and I'm not sure that the, the interventionists always buy that repackaging. But though, so, you know what's interesting about this section to me was that it, it's a great reminder that there's always been cancel culture. Mm -hmm. Rothbard yes. talks about the personal and professional uh, problems which people who are at the heart of the old right experienced in terms of losing jobs, losing friends, losing status, prestige. And, it, you know, they were viewed as uh, there was a lot of red baiting. So just like Russia, Russia, Russia today, you know, that sort of thing was going on. There was uh, vilification and loss of employment, which with Rothbard talks about. So, you know, this... This sort of thing has been going on before. I mean, the people involved in this, there wasn't all the, you know, instantaneous online platforms to spread uh, or, or to cancel people in, in that sense. But, they, you know, people were suffering over, you know, holding the positions of the old right. Absolutely. And I, this comes through a lot also in uh, Justin Raimondo's biography of, of Murray Rothbard, where it goes into a lot of the publications that uh, you know, he, he lost a lot of institutions that he could rely on to, to the word out because of his foreign policy views. And, and of course, we saw this with the history of the National Review and, and purging certain aspects of the movement. We saw it repeated in 2000s with the, the unpatriotic conservative sort of line that was once again resurrection from the National Review with uh, David Frum's The World and whatever, you know, Lou Rockwell, among others, being some of those most uh, uh, vehemently attacked. And then I think this also shows, again, what made Rothbard such a, a fascinating political figure during that time, because even other libertarians, great libertarians, you know, he, he mentions Henry Hazlitt in particular, he was still able to get published in National Review, doing great work on the economic side of things, because he did not take quite that same sort of, you know, he says, you know, never quite the same isolationist. And so, like, even within the libertarian sphere, you know, having someone willing to, to be this strong on the Cold War issue, which... Rothbard identified as, as being a driver for the buildup of so much of the state. Again, it highlights just you know, what, what made Murray Rothbard, you know, Murray Rothbard that had this such profound impact on uh, so many different aspects of libertarian life. Well, though, you can probably imagine back in the day how many times I heard people say, I love Ron Paul, except foreign policy. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's the one thing that's interesting now. Where this is, this is why on the right, I think, in the contemporary setup, you know, the fact that you know, Tucker Carlson is perhaps the, the most prominent anti-war critic in the country right now coming on Fox News from a very right of center perspective. I think, again, that's something that, that Murray Rothbard would have recognized as a unique opportunity for libertarians to reach out to um, precisely because if you get the, the war issue right, there's so many other things that, that line behind it. And so we're interested to see how much of this just continues to be lip service. You know, obviously, we, we saw a mixed record of that last four years. But again, I, I think that's the sort of rhetoric out there. Again, it's funny how the, the America first, you know, uh, rhetoric of, of Pat Buchanan, and that's exactly what Trump was able to, to build upon and has become now the really the, the banner, the ideological banner in the Republican circles now is are you America first Republican hmm. or a uh, Bush era Republican? So that's interesting to see how that, that po keeps popping up. Yeah, the fault lines always seem to come back to the same things. It's all cyclical, isn't it? But as the uh, 
30s fade away. We get into the 1940s and the United States goes whole hog uh, into World War II. He talks in this book here about Nock and Mencken sort of fading from the scene that their careers suffered, that World War II was the beginning of the end for the old right and maybe Korea sealed the deal. But Patrick, you know, there's this unbelievable discussion here of 1944 where you have this trifecta of published works. You have bureaucracy and omnipotent government coming out from Mises and, of course, the latter being a wholesale indictment of uh, any kind of collectivism, but but including Nazism as, you know, I guess from Mises' perspective, a left-wing phenomenon. But in addition to this, you have The Road to Serfdom published by Friedrich Hayek, which had got a ton of play, especially on the right, as Rothbard mentions, actually brought some socialists over to the individualist camp. And so, you know, but these books, these publications at the time weren't able to stem the tide. They weren't enough. Oh, yeah, because uh, basically during World War II, that was just a general sort of low point. Uh, Mises and Hayek both more or less had completely lost their influence. Mises, uh, in, in the economics profession, Mises had to flee to New York. And neither of those books, now I think Bureaucracy and Omnipotent Government, they were written with basically NBER grants. They didn't really have too much of, a, uh, of, a, of an impact. Hayek's Road to Serfdom obviously had much more of an impact. What's funny, though, about those, in a sense, is, is and this is also touched on in, in Guido Holzman's biography of, of, of Mises, is that, you know, in, in many ways, those books weren't even as radical as you could say the American old right in certain respects in, uh, you know, d- during this time period. I mean, even Mises and Hayek, you know, they were they were not really revisionists when it came to foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but many people, many Americans, uh, you know, the, the of the old right during this time period were fighting uh, entry into World War II and so on. And there was a lot of revisionism. Uh, one of Mises' students, Percy Greaves, sort of uh, cut his teeth uh, writing on Pearl Harbor revisionism and so on. And uh, yeah, so that that sort of led to some of the 50s. But yeah, basically by the end of World War II, uh, you had very little of a cultural or of an intellectual climate for the old right, for Austrian economics, for libertarianism in general. And it was kind of survived, so to speak, by you know the Foundation for Economic Education and the Volcker Fund. Right. And that's what Chapter 7 is really all about. Though mentioned earlier, there's a bit of a memoir or biographical Nate, aspect to this book. And I think Chapter 7 is when that comes through the strongest. A lot of that was probably already familiar to you, Patrick, as someone who spent a lot of time inside Rothbard's head. But the other thing that struck me about Chapter 7 and reading about Fee and some of the figures there, uh, reading about the Volcker Fund and some of the figures there, was this is actually an a unbelievably concise little encapsulation of a history of the early American libertarian movement. Oh, absolutely. You you see that uh, because in many ways, the history of the modern American libertarian movement, you know, post-World War II is in many ways uh, also, you know, history of Murray Rothbard. That's when he got involved. He was involved in these organizations. And yeah, you, you, you learn about fee. You learn about why it, it sort of, you know, Rothbard criticized it for basically Rothbard's you know, goal during this time period. One of his projects and the shine to this book is he wanted to sort of create a libertarian organization that would fund research, that would support scholars, 
that would be able to fight against some of these large sort of foundations that he also criticizes later on from the, he talks about on the Reese committee, uh, like Rockefeller Foundation and so on. And, you know, he first tried it with fee, but, you know, Leonard Reed didn't want to talk about anarchism or anything that was, you know, more than like moderate free market economics. So then he sort of moved to the Volcker Fund. The Volcker Fund was who basically funded Rothbard in the 1950s to write Man, Economy, and State and gave him his various connections. Volcker Fund also funded Mises and Hayek. Uh, and that uh, basically blew up uh, in the early 1960s. Uh, and then Rothbard sort of moved to try to uh, get, you know, make IHS that organization. And then later on, Rothbard criticized IHS because of the, uh, <laughs> it was, it was too, I guess, too student focused and, and et cetera, among other, among other things. And that, yeah. So you, you get this history of the libertarian movement. It's in many ways, very linked in with, uh, Republicans and the, and the right, uh, people who co constantly, you know, argue that libertarianism is sort of, a is liberal, you know, or on the left, so to speak, and, and in certain sense, they're not really getting the history of how all of these ideas were more or less kept alive by uh, conservative groups. Uh, and so you, you you read, you learn about this a lot uh, in these chapters of the book. Well, I wonder, and you and I have discussed this, if the Volcker Fund had stayed afloat and Rothbard had simply stayed there and made a reasonable living, not a a great living, but a reasonable living, how much his career might have changed and looked different in hindsight if he had just continued to stay there and write books and read and, and research rather than going into academia at, at Brooklyn Polytech. Yeah, that's that's undeniably something. So he 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 wanted to do that. He had basically had a full-time grant to write Man Economy and State until 1956. Afterwards, he then was doing stuff part-time for the Volcker Fund, he was working on America's Great Depression. When the Volcker Fund collapsed, there was a little bit of a lag because before it collapsed, through the Volcker Fund, he was able to get money from the uh, uh, the uh, Lilly Endowment uh, to basically write what became Conceived in Liberty. So his plan, so to speak, was to more or less just research and write uh, books and articles for you know a major foundation or work at like an Ivy League university. Well, but the Ivy Leagues didn't want anything to do with him. And then when he ran out, the research grant ran out uh, for Conceived Liberty, uh, he sort of had to go haphazardly on the job market to Brooklyn Polytech. But the Volcker Fund collapsing was absolutely a very big uh, part of Rothbard's career, sort of the trajectory it went into. Right. And of course, not only his PhD from Columbia, but also his academic output. Absolutely. Back then, when academic jobs were a little easier to get, absolutely qualified him for a tenured track teaching job in the economics department at any number of Ivy League colleges. So this, this idea that somehow Rothbard had to go to Brooklyn Tech, this is a political matter, folks, listeners. Uh, it, it, this had nothing to do with his intellect or capability uh, because he was running circles around just about everybody, including um, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the former chair and you know, head of the Fed later, uh, his nemesis at Columbia University, namely Arthur Burns. Uh, but Patrick, you know, I'm struck here by something else we've discussed in the past that teaching students and doing the kind of research and writing that academics do these are two totally unrelated skills. It, there, there ought to be maybe a bifurcation between the two. It's it's like the student athlete across the street at Auburn University. Look, you're here to play football. You're really good at football. You should spend all your time 
uh, doing football, and that inures to the university's benefit. The team does better, whatever, and you know maybe even they should be paid. I don't. I won't opine on that here. But then we go through this pretense of saying, oh, but you know you're getting a degree and you're going to class, and you you know a lot of the student athletes don't have much time to study. They don't do that well. They struggle, and, and so this idea that professors. Uh, have to to straddle both worlds. It's, it strikes me as a really inefficient and, and stupid way to go about producing academic output. I agree. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, this Where, is there a, is there a Newman fund? Is, yeah. is there such thing as a Newman fund? <laughs> uh, no, but I guess maybe there should be. I, I'd love it if there was. Uh, but sometimes my my father might have complained about a Newman fund when I was younger. He thinks it was. Sort of whenever he bought me food or anything like that. But anyway, that's that's a conversation for another time. Yeah, this is a very big part in Rothbard. This is something a part of Rothbard's analysis of intellectuals. He talks about the progressive era. He talks about in this book. Traditionally, uh, professors taught. They were mainly just worked at liberal arts colleges. One of the main motives for moving towards the system was taking inspiration from uh, Germany's state-funded schools. And intellectuals said, "Well, we want to be more prestigious. We want to do." important studies and advise uh, politicians and do all this research. And you started to see a lot of this funding develop, particularly during World War I and also World War II, when economists were basically hired by the government to plan and advise regarding price controls and rationing and uh, you know all sorts of various you know linear programming regarding military and the mathematization. And now you, you started to see really growing in the 50s this movement where you had certain sides, and he mentions this when he's talking about the foundations, they very sort of interventionist bias and also a quantitative bias that, you know, at the Ivy League, professors could do this. And Rothbard had sort of wanted to try to do that to kind of fight toe-to-toe against them. This is the unfortunate aspect. You know, he wasn't really able to get those resources marshaled under his command, though he was certainly trying at fee and at the Volcker Fund and later at Institute uh, for Humane Studies and, and so on. But, you know, this it's a problem you, you still have today where, you know, certain intellectuals are basically uh, the ones who are able to really do research, uh, you know, just focus that on their job are getting funded more or less by the government, which even though they say this isn't a conflict of interest, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an enormous conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Well, so I want to point readers to page 74 because this is such, a, I think, a critical point in Rothbard's own development and also in a broader movement's development. And, you know, he's a little unhappy with Leonard Reed's essay for Fee about government, and he himself is shifting over to the Volcker Fund almost entirely. And he brings up a, almost a, a syllogism of sorts at page 74 where he says, well, you know, he's talking to his, his friends uh, on the left or status friends. They say, well, what's the – what makes your laissez-faire – government that just protects property and individual rights, what makes that legitimate? And Rothbard says, well, people got together and they decided to establish this minimalist government to protect liberty and property. And then the follow-up to that from his friends is like, well, if people can get together and agree to create that government, why can't they also get together and agree to create a government that's much larger, that builds roads and dams and controls the economy and controls money and does all kinds of things? And he, he says – he realizes in a flash that their logic was impeccable, that laissez-faire was logically untenable, and that either it had to become a liberal or move onward toward anarchism. You know, think how differently things would look for us at the Mises Institute, for example, today, if Rothbard had had stayed with this the night watchman state or minarchism or however you want to frame it. 
No, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting. After that, he, he talks about his uh, inspiration that he, he received from you know, people like Lysander Spooner and Benjamin Tucker um, and, and some of the, the old anarchist tradition that you know, became more, more relevant after he had that sort of awakening. And he mentions that it's it's that Leonard Reed's embrace of minarchism, which you know you have to acknowledge, you know that that, that was something that that Mises was okay with, right? You know, this this was a a split with England and the Austro libertarian uh, faction purely. That it was kind of that breakaway that took away a lot of the energy that Fee was building at that time. And it's interesting now, like when you think about you know what the Austro libertarian sphere, even people that may not necessarily agree with with Rothbard's views on. Fractional reserve banking necessarily, or or some of the other, you know, they'll they'll find plenty of other ways to take some punches at Rothbard. The number of of anarchists that are within the Austrian tradition, you know, I think reflects just again how significant uh, Rothbard's political uh, views, again outlined in this book, you know, had in this larger you know, intellectual tradition. A lot of the the concepts, you know, uh, Nap and some of the other things, you know, it really became uh, uh, baked into had an outsized impact within the Austrian tradition generally. I think that's correct. But I also think, to be fair, there are probably plenty of people who think that libertarianism and anarchism, the more extreme form, let's say, uh, have been a drag or a hindrance for Austrian economics. And conversely, that Austrian economics, with its, uh, you know, uh, not dismissal, but its lack of focus on empiricism, has been a bit of a drag for the libertarian movement. I mean, we certainly hear those criticisms. Well, yeah, I think you definitely get some people retreat from it. And that's one of the things I think is so great about Rothbard in particular, and something that just shines through in this book, is that he recognized that simply taking the analysis that, that the state is, he doesn't view the state as legitimate, he doesn't use that as a substitute for political strategy. It's like if, if you want to deal with cancer, you don't deal with it by pretending it doesn't exist or saying that you don't like it, right? You, you have to understand the elements of cancer and, and, and figure out the ways to remove it scientifically right and, he, and and this book is so fascinating because it, again it's his focus on the institutional aspects of a movement uh and the importance of alliances you know on a political side of things you, you see this strategic side of rothbard so so deeply saturated within these these histories of thought that so yeah which i always find some of the most interesting parts of his his uh bibliography and, and I, I think too many libertarians don't take that step right they they dismiss the state, and therefore they don't want to engage with what does it mean to have to actually alter the power structures in a way to get us closer to liberty. Rothbard was never that naive. He recognized that you both need a strategic outlook as well as a theoretical outlook. And and I think now at a time you know where, where people are resurrecting you know the works of James Burnham, who who does not uh, in, not not one of Rothbard's favorite people. He does get a mention here, um, but you know that that look at. Uh, you know, what does it really mean you know, that has a Machiavellian style political strategy? Rothbard, I think, understood so much of that stuff in ways that so many other libertarians don't. And which is why and it's incredible how how the center he played in so many different libertarian alliances is you know a, a testament to his skill. Well, I'd like to make a quick point, which is that it's interesting to me that some of the leading figures in the Austrian school, a school which originated in part as a reaction and a rejection of the German historical school, uh, historicism, uh, actually understand history better and frame things in context better as a result than many of their, let's say, Keynesian critics. When you read Rothbard, this is a guy who understands history and the, and the context of things. He knows history isn't everything, though. Uh, and as we get into the post-war period, uh, in, especially in chapter eight of this book, 
we we come across a bunch of names which are, are very near and dear to my heart, particularly H.R. Gross of Iowa, who's someone I've written a little bit about, virtually unknown today, but a really fascinating figure. We hear more about Howard Buffett, of course, Warren Buffett's father, who was a congressman representing the Omaha, Nebraska area. Uh, we hear a little bit more about Senator Taft. And, uh, you know, we actually find out that Howard Buffett was a personal friend of Murray Rothbard's and actually a, a benefactor of him. So, so let me turn to Patrick here and say, you know, after World War II, what's left of the old right non-interventionist impulse is found among these characters, and they have their work cut out for them trying to do what they can to oppose a tidal wave, a, a juggernauts like NATO and conscription and the Truman Doctrine. So it's, it's a, a down period, let's say. Oh, absolutely. You know, one other name I wanted to mention, aside from Howard Buffett, who, who Rothbard had, uh, had you know, had corresponded with and knew, is that was also Ralph Gwynn, uh, New York congressman. Because Rothbard is, is a little known, a uh, little unknown uh, Easter egg is that Rothbard actually did some work for him. Uh, I want to say 1958. It was very briefly, but it was one of his odd jobs he was doing in between, mm -hmm. basically, uh, like after he wrote Man, Economy, State and its publication. So he was doing some stuff there for him. But yeah, so you have these, uh, you know, aside from the intellectuals that we've spoken about, you have uh, these uh, old right individuals who they're trying to stop the movement to what uh, Garrett, Garrett called, you know, basically the empire uh, in like anti-foreign uh, intervention. So uh, Senator Robert Taft, I believe, was anti-NATO. He was anti-Marshall Plan. Uh, he Rockford does mention how he was a compromiser on some things like the Taft-Hartley Act, uh, re revising the Wagner Act or giving some foreign policy leadership to some uh, interventionist uh, individuals. Uh, but, you know, you, you had these individuals, they were trying to stop uh, the movement towards empire. They had fought against Korea, Korean interventionism, uh, Truman moving into Korea, uh, you know, 1950. They didn't want to uh, aid, uh, the, you know, uh, China, or at least, you know, the, the Chinese Revolution and, and, and so on that was going on, or Chiang Kai-shek, who was uh, <laughs> uh, who often required a lot of money from us in the United States, um, and so on. And and yeah, so these they're they're not able to really make that much head ground though. Uh, NAM, National Association of Manufacturers, uh, was a small business front that was back in the old right. But, you know, in 1956, they sort of shift their stance in the Wagner Act. Uh, at each moment now, you start to see sort of compromising and moderation that Rothbard sort of criticizes throughout his career. And it really starts to affect the Republican Party, where by the mid-1950s, it had lost sort of any sort of interventionist or, excuse me, anti-interventionist stance. Uh, moderates had secured the nomination in 1948. And then 1952, like Eisenhower, so Taft was more or less gone. He later dies. And this is the movement into the familiar neocon or what we would consider neocon mm -hmm. of the bellicose, you know, Republicans to the point where just fighting the Soviet Union or, you know, the perpetual war for perpetual peace is really their only uh, goal or their most important goal. And this is what ultimately caused Rothbard to break away uh, from the Republican Party, no longer call himself right, uh, and this was this was an important issue that uh, caused them to you know support Democrats uh, campaigning and you know ally with the left later on in the sixties. Right. So we're moving from the fifties to the sixties, and something that struck me, Patrick, was 
when Rothbard brings up the Truman intervention in Korea, we call it a police action now, uh, that this was really sort of the death knell of the old right, I'm very much reminded of Ron Paul's arguments against the Iraq war in the early 2000s when he says that, you know, Senator Taft, our, one of our heroes of this book, at least a minor hero, he attacks the war in Korea on a couple grounds. He, first, he says that Korea is not vital to the interests of the United States. Same thing Ron said about Iraq. And then he says that the, the intervention could be construed as a threat to the security of the Soviet bloc. So we might stir up the Soviets just like we stirred up uh, the Shia and the Sunni and a lot of other factions in the Middle East when we invaded. And then he says that the police action violated the UN charter. Well, we don't care so much about that, but that it was unconstitutional aggrandizement of war powers of the president. And so really since then, and depressingly, Patrick, since then, we've just been going over and over this War Powers Act stuff, which later came in the in early 1970s and presidential powers and the failure of Congress to declare war. And it really, the Korean War, I think, represents a fundamental shift in how the United States would thereafter engage in war. Say what you will about World War I and World War II. I think the Korean War is where the underlying uh, legality and the need for congressional action just became fatally murky. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I believe the last war Congress actually declared war on was World War II, and everything else has been what was later called, or I think it's called authorization for the use of military force. The president more or less sends the troops, then it's, you know, <laughs> it gets Congress to be like, all right, now fund this. Uh, you know, it, it, it definitely has shifted it where now the president is, in a sense, almost a quasi general that doesn't need Congress's uh, sort of uh, official stamping on it. This is somewhat uh, our president, uh, James K. Polk, who did this in the, the Mexican War, uh, you know, really one of the first people to do that. But yeah, the Korean War, uh, you, you, you see that a lot with one, the similar arguments of, of later on, you know, regarding Ron Paul and the Iraq war and the spending too much is going to be the one other problem. And we're constantly doing this, but this was, this was a big movement that uh, Rothbard mentions uh, in, it really be, plays a bigger role is that this is, this is the Korean war is, is sort of, you know, it's a, we're an officially an empire. This is the time when America has a dominant executive foreign policy is our most prominent concern. Uh, there's, you know, the nation has sort of a militarist, uh, you know, uh, climate, you live in fear, there's satellite nations that we're trying to, you know, govern across the world, etc. And so it, it, it absolutely is a, is, a, is a big turning point. And this is a, a big reason, the fact that the Republicans, uh, some individuals Rothbard, you know, formally supported, uh, they had shifted to this, uh, that has really caused Rothbard to take a huge, uh, you know, uh, exodus. He, he left, uh, you know, sort of allying with the Republicans until he thought he, there was a chance to sort of bring that back with the end of the Cold War in the early 90s. But the Korean War, in many ways, yeah, is, is a watershed of empire, so to speak. It's we're really, you know, now just, you know, Team America, world police, so to speak. Well, for both of you, I'd like to wrap up this conversation with a discussion of the modern conservative movement, which really finds its roots in the 1950s and 1960s. It's not perhaps as old as people think, and it it's very much involves William F. Buckley and National Review, which was, it was and to, to an extent, it remains a bit of a house organ for conservatives. So I'll start with, though, you know, when we read about National Review 
and, uh, you know, Buckley's relationship with Frank Chodorov and his early identification as a libertarian when he wrote God and Man at Yale, all the allegations about CIA involvement, all the ex-communists who found their way uh, to National Review, Machiavellians like Burnham who find their way to National Review. Um, boy, there's a lot here, though, and I think we can trace some of the divisions today between you know, the uh, John Boehner Republicans, the George W. Bushes, the Claremontistas, the Jaffaites, the National Review types, the American conservative types. Uh, but, you know, all of these schisms and factions we see today sort of come out of this era. Absolutely. And, and uh, Rothbard focuses on the, like the, the key defining moment that, that changes everything um, is the 1952 election where Eisenhower beats Taft. And then I think from there, kind of outward, because that's grounded on going forward on, on that foreign policy issue with, with with the instruments of the National View and what Buckley was able to build, you know, that's that's where, where Rothbard you know, mentions that he, he no longer sees himself as part of the as a normal Republican. But I think he uses the words I, I, he now saw himself as a member of the extreme right because once Eisenhower took that position of Republican Party leader and and all of the additional kind of institutions that were built thereon after. With the national view side of thing, like that's that's when he was put out in the wilderness, and and I think that's what's interesting now is that that national reviews brand of the Republican Party is now the ones you know they they had a published an article earlier this week about how oh we can't get rid of Liz Cheney from leadership. Well, guess what? It looks like even so, even someone like Kevin McCarthy who does not have the the strongest background in the world, he's he's on his way to get get rid of Liz Cheney because uh, it's the biggest disruption to kind of I think that group of the GOP holding the institutional power of the American right. You know, Trump destroyed so many of these organs, the, the, the significance of the Heritage Institution, the, the Heritage Foundation of the National Review of these these matters. And once you have the breakdown, and again, this is what so much of Rothbard's analysis goes into, is that once you see, once these powerful institutions are made irrelevant, that is even more important than the names on the ballot changing. And that's what has this moment now is that so many of the traditional organs of, let's call it Conservatism, Inc., some of them still exist. The names might still exist. Some of the leadership might be a little bit different. Um, some of them might still exist and, and are still able to, to get checks from donors but don't have a lot of significant impact. Um, and that is, I think, where Rothbard would see. And, and this is, again, similar to what they were what, – what you know, the Rothbard-Rockwell report was trying to do in the 90s, uh, building with the Buchanan wing against you – know, in that post-Cold War era. When you have major changes in the way that foreign policy plays on the right, that is what allows for disrupting. Um, that, that's what gets us closer to those old old right elements um, that Rothbard saw the ability to, to build upon. So again, it's again. There's reading this book. There's just so many parallels and some of the issues that um, again motivated this broad coalition. Um, that it's, it's going to be interesting to see if there is that, that outreach to those Tory anarchists or whether you simply get a new version of Teddy Roosevelt progressivism. You know, it, it does, does Buckley right style republicanism come up in a new new vessel and then Nikki Haley's the world, things like that. Um, but it's, it's that does create some, some interesting questions going forward. Patrick, one thing that Murray Rothbard notes is that National Review was founded, and I'm quoting him, with much expertise and financing in late 1955. So almost from the get-go, this is an establishment publication. Now, it's it's been hugely influential. We can't question that. 
but its mania against communism, which was ostensibly in service of liberty, uh, led it to take some illiberal positions at home, let's just say. Oh, absolutely. And Rothbard goes through this. The one Rothbard, which he talks about in this book, and it also sort of lasts throughout his his life, is he had some, uh, there was definitely bad blood between him and Bill Buckley, to, 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 to say the least, in that uh, he, he he goes through, he talks about the, the, the link between National Review and, and the CIA, and you know, you call it, he's Buckley. You know, did some work for the CIA before he founded National Review, and yeah, it was, it was absolutely a significant uh, periodical. I, I agree with so in that I think uh, some of the traditional Republican, you know, the the classic, you put a compassionate conservative or sort of a a Bush Republican, if you will, a Mitt Romney or a John McCain or you know a, a Bush, etc. I think it's going to be harder to get. There's going to have to be some significant change regarding that, you know, demographical change. I think you know you're either getting a, uh, you know, a, a more prominent, you know, minorities or, or women making those points. That's what they're trying to do is uh, with Cheney. Uh, it, it does kind of open up like what the institutional layout of the Republican Party conservative movement, just in general, uh, looks like. And in some of those old organizations. Uh, I think might not have as much influence or they'll, or, or they'll shift, uh, you know, they'll merge, I think, with gen, gen, sort of the moderate liberal establishment, which is kind of how Rothbard actually ends the book, talking about how really the Republicans had by the time of, you know, the early 70s just more or less become, uh, you know, you could say conservative Keynesians and uh, that they're just big government, but it's just a change, maybe a little bit more, maybe a tax cut here or there. And a slight trimming of the deregulatory agency, but you know, increased foreign interventionism, and yeah, then it's just you know, it's just the two sort of blah parties, and it'll be interesting to see if that can if that we go back to that in uh, our lifetime, you know, in, in our world now. Right, but the Nash, the National Review conservatism of today is not as easily defined. I mean, back then they were talking about fusionism, they were talking about the three legs of the stool, in other words, laissez-faire capitalism. Uh, strong national defense, uh, you know, uh, family values, social conservatism. I mean, you, that was a coherent policy, whether one agrees with it or not. I'm not sure I understand, and I'll open this to either one of you. I'm not sure I understand what defines conservatism today. I mean, right now, conservatism is pretty much owning libs. You know, it's essentially, the best part of conservatism is owning the libs. It's, it's a reaction simply to push back on whatever the, the, the left is proposing right now. And that's why Trump was was good because was very successful at because if if all you're doing is taking pot shots at democratic figures, nobody's a better insult comic than Donald Trump. And so therefore, you know, there, there's no there's no larger intellectual depth there. And so someone like Trump was was perfectly made to come in and take advantage of this moment. But what's interesting is because of that because of that disruption. Uh, again, cutting a lot of the loyalties that rank and file Republican voters had to National Review and some of these other outlets, that's allowed for other institutions with, with some some differences, some different flavors out there to to try to enter in that sphere. We'll see who ends up having the most success. I, I think a lot of the people on the populist right, for example, right now, vastly overestimate how much Trump voters really believed in their political agenda, and rather than just voting for Trump himself as a personality. Um, and so I, I think where exactly what what ends up being the intellectual leader on the right might change. But what, what's also kind of interesting is that going into it, you know, obviously this is leading into Rothbard's libertarian years. But there's some interesting, I think, parallels between that and, and the modern age as well. 
because you know, Rothbard writes in the 90s, like a lot of his frustration with the libertarian movement is, like, okay, we had this big boost of energy in the 70s, and 20 years later, where's the vitality? You know, we're saying a bunch of the same things. We have a bunch of moochers in the movement, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you think about the libertarian movement in 2021 – it's it's it hasn't been quite twenty years since uh, Ron Paul two thousand eight and, and that revolution, but I think that a lot of the reasons why people in, in libertarian sphere were kind of looking at Trump or or some even looking on the left, you know, if, if that was where their the cultural leanings lie, there's that same sort of stagnation that I think exists in the libertarian movement after Ron Paul twenty eight two thousand eight that Rothbard would go on to acknowledge, you know, in the in the early nineties, and so again that's something else where. You know who, who's someone like Rothbard and, and, and Lou Rockwell you know, out there able to to energize, um, you know a, a, a you know some, some meaningful political uh, alliances out there. So that, that's what I think one of the most interesting questions that I'm looking for. So Patrick, we need to wrap this up, but let let me close with this question to you: Rothbard's basic critiques of the right and, and how it was abused uh, throughout the 20th century. Has has that rendered the right impotent? I mean, I mean, is the right done as a political force in America because of the, the very betrayals that Rothbard outlines here? Well, I think uh, if it still suffers from those, it's it's tough to get you know sort of a a, a comeback. I think the betrayals, the classic issue is always on the moderation regarding foreign policy, or always trying to roll back government. Uh, you started to see that in the Trump administration, where you know, Republicans had previously under the Obama years, they had outright repeal of, of, of Obamacare because they knew he was going to veto it. But then when they actually have a chance, you know, you see all the normal, uh, well, we only just got to trim it. And it's always a lot harder for Republicans to pass anything. But, you know, Democrats, as long as they have the thinnest of majorities, they can uh, they, they can manage to pass things. Uh, I, I think it, it, it definitely you I, I think it's I think it's done as a major force uh, on the national scene with just current demographics and also voting trends. So I think there has to either be some sort of splitting up of the country, some either just general movement back what you started to see in some states uh, regarding uh, voting, et cetera. I can tell you now with, with mail-in balloting and, and, and voting by couch and, and all of that stuff, uh, re Republicans, they can't survive. With that, they've always been a low turnout party, and uh, there's there has to be some changes for for them to at least be prominent on the national level. They, well, they're always going to have strongholds in various parts, but they, they, they suffer from some fundamental weaknesses. The country is just biased towards big government, and that always has you know crippled the right much more than the left. Well, we'll leave it there. But there certainly is a huge constituency, even on the right, for maintaining entitlements. Let's not kid ourselves about that. Though, uh, and Patrick, I want to thank you for your time today. I want to recommend everybody listening, if you've got some time this weekend, uh, we'll post a link to our online version of The Betrayal of the American Right. It's a pretty easy read. It comes in at about 200 pages, but you could certainly read it in a weekend comfortably. Uh, you can order it online using the code HAPOD for Human Action Podcast and get a discount. Uh, really a fun book. If you're interested in Rothbardian political thought, I think it's a must read. And if you're interested in the history of libertarianism, the old right and the new right, uh, I think it's an important read as well. So all that said, ladies and gentlemen, have a great weekend. 
The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.